take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We want to conclude this sermon series, this um, a part of our Hebrew study, really. Hebrews 13, which we have exposited several weeks ago. And in Hebrews 13, verse 17, the, the writer says to the congregation, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will give have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And from that text, having explained it, then we begin to say, what are the four main functions of a pastor, of a shepherd, an elder, uh, an overseer? The, the Bible uses three terms to talk about one office, and each term adds to our knowledge of what that office is. The Bible calls them elders. Um, those who are in the first century sense, elders who are charged with ruling over or overseeing um, a group. And usually it was in secular society or in the synagogue. But the church also used, Paul used this term to talk about pastors. Um, then second, the second term, pastor or shepherd, it, it means what it sounds like it means, right? It's someone who cares for, watches after, nurtures, feeds, protects a flock. We know that the church is called the flock of God. And so it's, this term takes on this meaning of not just leading or ruling, but also caring for, protecting, feeding. Bishop, uh, which became in much later in church history, 200, 300 years after Christ's death, there was an official office named Bishop. And that's not good, that's not good uh, church doctrine. That was a, not a good development. Because that term bishop also speaks of this office, which is overseer. Um, and it means to, again, to watch carefully over, to um, mind or protect or keep. And so we have all of these three terms, and they culminate around one group of men in the church. We get lots of instruction in the epistles of Paul concerning this office. It's very important that the New Testament have its own voice here. Because in our modern churches, we have invented many styles of leadership, but it's very dangerous to go away from what God has clearly pointed to us as the model of leadership for His church. If we believe that the church is the body of Christ, we all would believe that, and he is the Lord or the head of that body, then isn't it logical and isn't it right that we give him the place of preeminence in giving us the models by which we lead the church or direct the church or function as a church? Who in their right mind would even walk into a person's, a human man's home and tell him, now, I know you're leading your family the way you should, but I'm going to tell you a different way to do it. It'll accomplish the same thing. That would be a pretty bold person, wouldn't it? Or walked into a man's business, place of business, maybe that he had started with his own sweat and tears, and say to him, hey, no longer do it that way. Do it this way. That's kind of what the church has done over the years, unfortunately, is told Jesus, we really want different models. We don't like the model that you gave us. Now, some would say there's no clear command. 
Well, to that I would just simply respond, show me another model. Why, why wouldn't he give us multiple models of leadership if it's up to us to choose? See, there's only one model given, and that is, as Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, those who desire the office of elder desire a good thing, and he lays out qualifications for them. He addresses then each of his epistles to the elders at different locations, every time referring to a plurality of leaders. We're going to see that in our text today. A group of people, not just one, but a group who is leading the local congregation, hopefully in love. And and it's modeled to us not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, which we referred to at the beginning of this series, speaks of Israel's shepherds who were not doing their jobs as God had called them to do. And God was, as we remember, God was going to punish them, take their leadership away, and give the leadership to a new set of shepherds. Ezekiel 34, 2 through 23 also talks about this same issue of bad shepherding. Those who are feeding themselves when they should be feeding the flock. Those who are watching after their own interests when they should be caring for the people of God. Those who don't stop others from intruding in to take advantage and to devour the flock. And sadly, in Ezekiel, we see that they themselves began to devour the people of God. Those who were given protective orders weren't protecting. They were actually carrying out the attacks. But God promised in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel that he would send a better shepherd, one who was greater than those shepherds, who would not fail in his task. And he sent that one, born in the city of David, of the Virgin Mary, the son of David and the son of God. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And he gathered to, his, to him men who he would care for for three, over three years. And he gathered a flock around him. And he shepherded them. We see it all through the Gospels. And in John 10, the most clear text where Jesus says to the people, I am the good shepherd. God, your Father, promised you a better shepherd. And I'm telling you, I am that shepherd. I've come to lay down my life for you. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will take it up again. Jesus was that better shepherd. And at the end of his life, in John 21, having died and been raised from the dead, he's sitting on the seashore with his men, and he looks at Peter in John 21, and he invests the authority of the shepherd into the apostles of the church. He tells them, feed my lambs. Take care for my sheep. Feed my flock, my sheep. He, the great shepherd, now going back to the right hand of the Father, passes the baton of leadership, not because these men are perfect and sinless, not because they have pure authority in and of themselves, but because he has the right to rule and reign in his church, and he will assemble his church and structure his church as he sees best fit. And then we have the testament of the Acts and all of the uh, letters to show us that the playing out of this, this duty. I'm telling you, we often overlook the seriousness of the task of shepherding the flock of God. I've been guilty of it. I know others have also. Today I want us to look at 
a passage of Scripture where Paul, the apostle, who himself was an elder, a shepherd of the New Testament church, gives last instruction to a church that he loves with all of his heart. Now, we got to kind of set the scene, right? Paul is in Miletus, which is south of Ephesus, is a port city. He skips over Ephesus because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wants to be in Jerusalem, most agree. He wants to be in Jerusalem with the offering for the relief of the saints. They were in a time of great trial and need and famine. And he had gone about the churches of Asia Minor collecting an offering. We see it in Corinth where he speaks openly about collecting the gifts that they had promised so he could deliver it to the saints, right? And so he's on this trip back from Asia, back into Jerusalem, and on the way he has constantly had brought to his mind in dreams and visions that he wouldn't leave Jerusalem of his own will, that he would be arrested. His people even pleaded for him not to go there. They said, if you go, you know that they will take you and they will put you in custody. And Paul said that he would go gladly. And so he's rushing down the seacoast here. We know he's been traveling for over two weeks at this time, and he knows if he stops off in Ephesus, he just might not make it in time. Now you might say, what's so significant about him getting back to Jerusalem for, the, for this time of Pentecost? Well, it's interesting. We're not 100% sure, but just think of it this way. The, the Feast of Pentecost was a feast of harvest, and it symbolized spiritually God saving Jews and Gentiles. That the blessing of salvation would multiply from Israel out to the ends of the earth. And so Paul has gone to the literal ends of the earth in the Roman Empire and gathered up this great gift that he wants to give the Jews in Jerusalem. And why does he want to do it at Pentecost? Because this gift mainly comes from the Gentiles going back to the Jews. He has an intent to get it to them and say, look, God has been faithful. He's done what you have been celebrating all these centuries God is raising up the Gentiles. He's saving them along with you. He wants them to be able to rejoice in their time of need and to celebrate God's great salvation. So he skips Ephesus because he's loved by those people and he knows he loves them and he might get distracted. He might miss his, he might miss his window of opportunity. So he stops at Miletus, but he cannot pass without talking to the leaders of the church. So he calls. He summons them to himself. It's about a day's travel. These leaders left their church, and they travel for a day. They come to the coast at Miletus, and there's the Apostle Paul. And this is the description we get of what he says to them. Now think of this. Paul knows, in his mind, I will never see these people again. These people came to faith because I preached the gospel. I trained them for three years. I left them in charge of the local church. Paul could say, what I'm saying to you is, Paul could say anything at this point that he wanted to. You would imagine if this was the last time you were going to see your children. Think of it that way. Kind of a will and testament. I want to tell my children the last thing that's most important. I'm not going to waste my words. I'm not going to talk about some frivolous matter. I'm going to talk to them about the core, about the centrality of the importance of what they need as they go into their future because I'm not going to be there. You see that? He's like a parent talking to his children. And we see the deepest depths of the heart of the Apostle Paul here for the local church. Look what he says in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, Think This speech is like the speech of Moses 
as he was dying and leaving the people of Israel. Like the speech of Joshua recorded in the book of Joshua to the people of Israel. Like the speech of Samuel after ordaining Saul king and then passing on the ministry and saying, I'm going away. Like the upper room discourse of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's upper room discourse. This is the heart of the apostle for these people and by extension for all the churches that would be raised up. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How did I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with the blood of His own. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The picture I have is of an older Paul walking to the ship and everyone around him, head lifted to God, tears flowing, praises being shouted out as they praised God for the good gift of the apostle to them. And Paul, head lifted high, praising God for the faithful ones that he was leaving behind in Ephesus, charging Christ's care over them to those pastors. Can you imagine, and as he sailed away, I imagine he stood at the back and watched him, head still lifted high, crying out for them to watch the flock. Take care. Don't lose any of them. This is the setting for this 
sermon as we talk about shepherds protecting their flock. You know, our hearts are fearful of many things. Physically, this, this generation, probably more than anything, fears what we call terror or terrorism. You know, in our nation, we've been struck with terror and terrorism. Around the world, we see these events taking place. Now, we think of terrorism and we think immediately of people from other countries that are seeking to bring down the economic systems or the ways of life in our hemisphere, in the West, particularly in Europe and in the United States. But my first experience with terror had nothing to do with dark-skinned, dark-haired, Middle Eastern people. I'll never forget in April 19, 1995, being in class and hearing the report of 168 dead because of a bomb in Oklahoma City. Over 600 people maimed and wounded. 258 buildings in the surrounding area had no, no glass left. All the glass shattered. 30 minutes after the bomb exploded, local police apprehended a man by the last name McVeigh. Through interrogation, they found that he had brought down that building and killed all of those people in protest of his own government. See, he wasn't dark-skinned, dark-haired. He didn't come from Syria or from Iraq or Iran. He was born and raised in the United States of America. He was a citizen here. He was one of our own. You wouldn't have picked him out in a lineup, in other words. You see, the most fearful thing that happens to people is not when outsiders attack, but when they're devoured by people inside. The most fearful thing that any church faces is not the attacks of a culture that doesn't profess Christ. The most fearful thing that happens is the terrorists that live inside our pews and preach from our pulpits. I call them terrorists because that's really what they are. They seek to scare, confuse, scatter, bring down a way of life. The New Testament calls them Wolves. Wolves, you see, in sheep's clothing, as Jesus says. They don't look like dangerous people. They don't talk like dangerous people. They build lots of friends around them. They gather lots of respect among the people. And then slowly, methodically, they begin to inch away from the center of the gospel. They begin to distract and turn people away from the truth of Jesus Christ. They do it in many different ways. They do it by promising what the Scripture doesn't promise, and not teaching all the Scripture does promise. They do it by changing the nature of who God is, or by adding to the nature of who Christ is. They do it by simple means. Like initially getting distracted with things other than the gospel. Things other than the truth central to our faith. And Paul is most concerned with them. You know, I just got to say as an aside here. Our churches 
need not worry as much about the culture around us as we worry about the purity of the witness within us. Listen, there is a right place and time, and we're going to talk about that this summer, for civic involvement. But it should break our hearts to see how mean-spirited and hateful the church of Christ often looks in public forums. All the while harboring inside our midst people that are far more dangerous than anyone who's transgendered or homosexual. Far more dangerous. Church, we should turn the guns of the gospel on our own hearts and on the hearts of those who are members here and the extended church and preach a message of hope and gospel to a lost and dying world who never claimed to be part of us anyway. Paul didn't waste his time at the end of his life, my point is, saying, hey, y'all be careful about the culture around you. It's real bad. You see, Paul lived with a bunch of transgendered, homosexual, lesbian, child molesters, prostitutes, drunks, revelers and orgy attenders. He lived around them. But when he was about to die, he said nothing about them. He talked only about his church. And so this is the heart of the message to us as shepherds and to you as the flock that we protect the flock. Here's how we do that. Shepherds protect the flock by proclaiming the truth. Proclaiming the truth. If we look at verse 20 and 21, we see Paul talking to these elders about his ministry. He's saying to them, by extension, this is what you should be doing. What I did, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul's ministry was replete with preaching, teaching, training in the gospel truths of the Word of God. We must preach a full gospel message. Paul and those elders at Ephesus and the people here at Grace Fellowship need to know the elders here don't seek to pick and choose doctrines that fit us. We don't try to talk about things that are easy and avoid things that are not easy. If you've ever attended our membership class, most people leave thinking those people are crazy to talk about the things they talk about. Nobody talks about those things. But you see, we believe that the way you protect the flock is by proclaiming the truth of the gospel unashamedly and the truths associated with that gospel without changing them or excusing them or hiding them or covering them up we don't run from them the whole counsel of God is beneficial to the people of God if we're not willing to preach it then there is a sense in which the people that we care for may not know it and if they don't know it, they're still accountable for it. Now, this isn't to take away the responsibility of each of you and myself to study the Word of God for ourselves. But far be it from us as pastors to rob you of the glories of God 
in all of the full array of his teachings. We should be seeking to teach constantly in all settings a full message of the gospel. Not picking and choosing. The high point of the message is always Christ. Although I thought it was interesting in the text as you study it, as you look at it, he, he calls it several things. It's the same thing, but I like Paul's variety. He could have just said the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's what a lot of us do, unfortunately. Not very creative or not very uh, good at, at altering our speech so that we catch people. But look at verse 21. He calls it, he says, I testified to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says, I want to finish the course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. It's the same thing. In verse 25, he says, I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom. I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom to them. It's the same gospel. It's the same truth of God that he's proclaiming. Verse 32, he varies again. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The pinnacle, the, the center point of all of the sermons and all of the, pre, all the teachings come into the teaching, the full teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A mystery in ages gone by and now at the end of time revealed to us that we might revel and glory in him as our redeemer. Paul says that we're to protect the flock. And the first thing we do to protect the flock is we teach the truth. We proclaim the truth. We, do a, we proclaim a full message. Secondly, we must preach the gospel to everyone. Verse 21 says, Paul talking to him says, I spoke to both Jews and Greeks. This is a bookend way of saying, I've preached the gospel to everybody. I'm reminded of Mark 16 in the longer ending when he says, preach the, preach the message of this gospel to every creature under heaven. And I'm reminded that uh, George Whitfield once said that he would preach, to, he would fulfill that by preaching to every animal, every human, every dog, every cat. He was going to preach to everybody. There's a little humor in Whitfield. But that's, that's the ambition that Paul had, and that's the ambition that we should have. If we want to protect the flock, we've got to teach a full message, and we can't just teach it to a select few, but to everybody. To everybody. And we must be compelled, not by obligation or duty, but by love and compassion. If we look at verse 19, Paul's telling them about his ministry. says, I serve the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happen to me through the plots of the Jews. Humility and tears and trials. These were the hallmarks of the apostolic ministry of Paul. These are the hallmarks of an elder's ministry. He's to be a humble man, leading by example and by the words of his mouth. If you get through pastoral work without shedding tears, you haven't done pastoral work. If you get through pastoral work for any amount of time without facing trials, tribulations, and attacks, you're probably not being faithful to the call. So, we preach a full gospel message to everyone who will listen. 
compelled by love and compassion for our hearers. And finally, we protect the flock by proclaiming the truth when we, must, we, um, we are consistent in preaching the gospel. Consistent, verse 20 says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Look what he did. Teaching in public, we have some of those sermons recorded, and from house to house. If you had the Apostle Paul over for coffee and biscuits, chances are, before he left, you were going to be brought into a point of hearing the truth. He didn't just preach it on Sundays and then go live his life. It was everywhere he went. It was all the time. One sure way to help the flock and protect the flock for us pastors is to be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ with you on a regular, varied basis. In different settings, I mean. Sometimes around your table, sometimes around my table, at the ball field, as we walk along and exercise, as we do our work, as we talk on the phone, as we send text messages through a Facebook or a Twitter. We should be constantly one theme, one purpose, one message that protects the flock. I can't tell you how many times I've put a simple quote up from a book that I'm reading, no thought of anybody in particular, and get five messages that say, you have no idea how much I needed that right there. You're right, I didn't know. But God knows. And the same can be said of so many of the pastors of this church whenever they've been in your home or you've been in their home or you've stood in the parking lot after a service and they've had a conversation that seemed so meaningless and then turned so quickly to some truth that just helped you hold on and instilled you with, with, with faith in Jesus Christ anew, afresh. Shepherds protect the flock by proclaiming the truth. He didn't just speak of it there, but he also spoke of it in verses 26 and 27 when he says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Ezekiel chapter 3, the watchman on the wall crying out that danger is coming. God told through Ezekiel, that's what the prophet's job is. He stands on the wall and he cries out. And if the city falls then, because of a lack of preparation, it's on the city, not the watchman. Paul says, I'm innocent when it comes to you people at Ephesus because I blew the horn of the gospel as loud and as broad and as consistently as I possibly could. If you don't believe, it's on you. It's on you. For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He testified with his, with his life and with his words and now he saw himself as innocent before God. Secondly, shepherds protect the flock by watching over themselves, watching over the flock and standing against false teachers. These three functions he lays out in 28 through 31a. Shepherds, first of all, watch themselves. They watch themselves. Verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. This may seem strange to us because when we think of the preacher, I told Mr. Bagwell before we started, he said, Now be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, hell, hell, fire, and brimstone sermons now. Be careful. I said, Don't worry, I'm preaching that myself. That's true, wasn't it? <laughs> it was true. But we often, as pastors, or we often see pastors, and we can all fall into this, they're more worried about everybody else, and they're not watching after their own selves. 
What does a pastor need to watch? He needs to guard his heart. Your heart is an idol factory, John Calvin says, and your heart longs to love something, and often it won't love the right thing. Even as a pastor, it's easy to get distracted with so many other things, so many other pursuits, and lose a heart for Christ. So I think here when he says, pay close attention to yourself or watch over yourself, pastor, he's saying, guard your heart. Secondly, he's saying, guard your conduct. Guard your own conduct. It kind of reminds me of uh, what we've all heard people say to us, when you point one finger out, you got this many pointing back at you. It's easy to stand behind this desk and point at you and forget that I'm under examination of the Word of God. My life, my conduct is also being chastened by the Lord. And so he says, guard your heart and guard your conduct. And I think he means also to guard your doctrine, Pastor. Guard your doctrine. Don't give an inch. Stand your ground. Don't compromise. You say, well, you, can't, you might not grow a church if you don't compromise. Then don't grow the church. It's not your job anyway. It's the job of Jesus Christ to grow his church. Richard Baxter in The Reformed Pastor writes it this way. Speaking of this very verse, this is what he says. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. It much hindereth our work when other men are all the week long contradicting to poor people in private that which we have been speaking uh, to them from the Word of God in public, because we cannot be at hand to expose their folly. But it will much more hinder your work if you contradict yourselves. And if your actions give your tongue the lie, and you build up an hour or two with your mouth, and all the week after pull down with your hands... This is the way to make men think that the Word of God is but an idle tale. I just make mention that he said he preached for two hours. You can speak for two hours and tear it down all week, and you did nothing. It did you no good. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a word. And blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Tell me, brothers, in the fear of God, do you regard the success of your labors or do you not? Take heed to yourselves. Paul says, pay close attention to yourselves. That's the first role that the shepherd undertakes when he protects the flock. Secondly, he watches after the flock. He watches himself first and then he watches the flock. Not like a hall monitor in God's house, but like a brother who often breaks the same rules and needs encouragement. That's what they do. They watch their own soul, and they often come to you, not pointing a finger, but wrapping an arm to say, I've been guilty of the same. Let's don't do that. Together, let's don't do that. All the flock, not just some of the flock. I just make mention that he's told it to all the people, not just a select few. Paul didn't have a private club that he met with and then sent them out to do his work. He met with as many people as possible. And that's the style of the ministry here. It's not possible to meet with everybody the same amount of time 
We're not keeping a record book, and I hope you're not. Well, he saw me this month. Will he see me next month? Will he see me the next month? Will he see me the next month? He didn't come to this. He missed that. But rather, if in general you say, you know, he's around us a lot. Those, those pastors care about us. They're, they're, they're constantly a part of our lives. That's what we do here. All the flock, not just some of the flock. We watch after the weak and the strong. We watch after the easy to love and the unlovable. We watch after the steady and the straying. We watch after the rich and the poor, the educated, the uneducated. All people in all positions of life inside the household of God should have someone caring for their soul. And that's the call of the shepherd. Finally, it says not just to watch yourself and not just to watch the flock, but to stand against false teachers. At the end of this, he says, after he leaves, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And notice verse 30, where are they coming from? Among your own selves. Now, it's not 100% here, but I think he would say, first of all, false teachers rise up from among the pastors. Watch for your own souls. And second of all, they rise up from the flock. Watch after the flock. In other words, many of the false teachers of today man pulpits every week. Sit in elders meetings and make decisions for the flock of God. We're to watch after them. They're wolves. If you remember, Jesus said he was sending us out as wolves, as sheep among wolves, and later said that the wolves are in sheep's clothing often. They're pretenders. They're inside. And Paul says the same here. Shepherds have to watch after wolves and guard the flock against them because sheep have no defense. They have no defense. And they must be defended. Now, to close, we just want to say this. Shepherds have to understand how precious a duty we have been given. Shepherds have to understand how precious a duty we have been given. This is my favorite part of the whole text after studying it. Before I studied, I would have said a lot of things maybe, but this is the most precious part to me. Verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, notice this, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. The pastors are not appointed by men. They're recognized by men. They're appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're called out from among the flock by God himself, the Holy Spirit. But he's not done there. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Who does this flock belong to? God has set his name on this flock. This is my people. He's called those shepherds by His Spirit, which He obtained with the blood of His own. How precious is this flock to Him? Peter says it's more precious than anything on the planet because He didn't buy it with precious jewels or gold or silver, but He bought it with the blood of His Son. This is a Trinitarian statement to the shepherds. You shepherds are employed by the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus Christ. This is their flock. Now, attend to it. Watch after it. Love it. Feed it. Lead it. Know it. Protect it. And at the end, when the great shepherd comes, all the under-shepherds will gather with their people before his throne.
And can you imagine the celebration of the under-shepherds and the people whenever they're able to say, we have brought them back to you. They have always been yours. And he's able to say, well done, my good and faithful servants or under-shepherds. I'm looking for that. I'm longing for that. I'm not guaranteed it. My grandfather pastored over 50 years. And as he was um, coming to the end of his life, we were at a family Christmas. And, and I had already surrendered to serve in the ministry. I was already serving in the ministry here even. And um, he was just sitting back, you know, looking at our family. He often did that. He didn't talk a lot. He sat back in his recliner and everybody, all the little kids were playing. He was probably trying to figure out how to get everybody out of his house. As he loved, as he said, to see the headlights coming and the taillights going. But I just kind of slid over next to him. I, I didn't know he was going to die, but I knew he, he was not doing good. He was very feeble. It was the last Christmas we were all together. And I just told him, I said, Papa, I love you. And he looked up at me, just kind of startled. He said, I love you, son. And he said, you've chosen the hardest job in the world. You've chosen the job with the most responsibility. I'm praying for you. I'll never forget the way my heart felt to know that an old shepherd, under-shepherd, was looking at this young under-shepherd saying, it's a tough task, but you signed up for it. Comes with a lot of responsibility, but you knew it when you took it. And he was praying. He's with the Lord now. But I'm so thankful that to this day I've been able to serve God's people. Specifically these people. I'm so thankful to live my life in front of you and with you, alongside you. So many of you have been a reason for me to continue. An encouragement, a word well-timed, well-placed, a prayer, a letter sent to me. You'll never know how much you mean to this shepherd and all the shepherds. And one of the greatest joys that I have is about every two weeks to go into a room, sit around a round table with six of my closest friends in the world and be able to share my life with them, confess my sin, ask for prayer, have them ask me tough questions, <laughs> hope they're going to ask somebody else. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. And it's because of Him. And so I would just close this sermon by saying, from Him and to Him, through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever in His church until He come. Amen.